May all that you stand for and that we stand for be preserved under the providence of God for the happiness of mankind. The trouble is caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old and outworn machines. But it is the values of individual liberty, equality before the law and the supremacy of people over the state to which we can always with confidence return as a powerful and uniting force. Australia is not a secular country, it is a free country. Good evening and welcome to Pello Talk. I'm Dave Pello and uh, I'm the editor of a website and a blog for right-thinking Australians called The Good Source. So I'm very pleased that you can uh, join me tonight. We're coming to you in a couple of YouTube channels and a couple of Facebook channels uh, and I'd love you to leave your comments and join in with the conversation there. So what we try to do each week on Pello Talk is just have a look at the website and uh, what articles are doing new and uh, particularly well in popularity. And so coming up tonight, we're going to have a look at this article with friends like ScoMo, who needs enemies? And the author, Professor Augusto Zimmerman, will be joining me to talk about uh, his experiences as a former vice president of the federal branch of the Liberal Party in Western Australia and uh, why, he, what his opinion is on, on ScoMo and, and why that's uh, changed. Uh, we're also going to be talking uh, about uh, COVID, of course, uh, all the lockdowns. The theme for tonight is uh, if, uh, you, you know, a tailor is the wrong person. There's a saying that a tailor is the wrong person to ask if you need a new suit. Uh, and likewise, government is the wrong people to ask if government is the solution to all of our problems. They're always going to be wanting to grow it. And, uh, and so really my observation is that government is the pandemic that we are now facing. Well, let's have a look at uh, this great article from Alexandra Marshall, Ellie Melly. She's written this and is unable to join us tonight, um, having to suffer the indignity of advancing one more year in her age. It's her birth week and uh, she has plans. Uh, and she's uh, quite upset that Augusto's article from last week is still top of the pops, uh, Australians living in a pandemic of arrogance and stupidity. Uh, but this article is threatening to take over in popularity and catch up uh, quite rapidly. Uh, and the article is, Last Drinks for Julia Banks. Failed politicians emit sob stories like dying whales screeching and splashing about as the harpoons drag them towards the canning ship. For those of significant fame, the dramatic end is orchestrated for them. Their demise is fodder for the 24-hour media storm, whether it was the, I swear I was hacked, Christopher Pine gay sex tweet-like, or conspicuous Aldi bags full of cash doing the rounds, there is always a sudden roar of camera flashes which ends with a virgin face presented to Parliament the next day. Then there are their MPs, the MPs that no one cares about. These political creatures are ill-equipped to navigate the dangerous waters of power and find themselves caught up in other people's games. Like driftwood, they bob up and down, getting snared on branches until they finally rot sufficiently to sink below the waterline where they die in obscurity. Julia Banks decided to rectify her disappointing demise by scurrying up the hashtag MeToo money tree spreading through Parliament like a foreign weed. According to the current feminist rules, if you identify as a woman and can produce a victimhood story, there's a book deal in it. Power play, breaking through bias barriers and boys clubs was launched by Banks during a rambling 19-minute special on the ABC's 7.30 report. According to the book's description on Booktopia, Power Play reveals the unvarnished realities of any workplace where power disparities and gender politics collide, from the unequal opportunities, casual sexism and systemic misogyny, to pressures around looks, age and family responsibilities, and the consequences of speaking out. Despite Banks's claim of an oppressive male-dominated profession, her presumably patriarchal party pre-selected her for the Melbourne seat of Chisholm, where she was widely praised by her male colleagues for being the only member during that election to win a seat off Labor. This male-dominated industry then invited her to play a prominent role in a major parliamentary inquiry into the big four banks called for by One Nation's Pauline Hanson, a woman. Quote, 
This helped us do better in Victoria, winning one seat from Labor, Chisholm, won by the magnificent Julia Banks, a moderate liberal who was subsequently rewarded for her victory by constant undermining and denigration by the right-wing group that controlled the Victorian division and was later to enthusiastically support Peter Dutton in his attempted coup of August 2018. End quote. Malcolm Turnbull writing in his self-pity epic, A Bigger Picture. In other words... Banks formed part of the Lino faction that exists within the Liberal Party, Liberal in name only, as a gangrenous infection previously led by Turnbull, a man who tried to join the Labor Party. Her decision to cuddle up with Turnbull and then back fellow loser Julie Bishop in the leadership Hunger Games backfired. What happened next was political, not sexist. Power brokers within the party moved against Banks as part of a wider cleanup operation against the left faction, incorrectly titled Moderates. Banks insisted that the leadership spill was a vengeful coup by Abbott supporters, which ignores the reality that Turnbull was a disaster in the polls. After citing a 30 straight news poll loss as justification for rolling Abbott, he then lost 39 news polls in a row and chose to announce his own leadership spill. When Banks fell in line behind the obvious dud Julie Bishop, she said that there was advice given by the other moderates to shift her vote. We got the direction to move our votes from Julie to Scott. I said, no, I'm voting for Julie in the first round. And then I had people sent to me and phone calls trying to move my vote. The thing that happens with bullying is people were afraid. They started becoming really concerned that Peter Dutton was seriously going to win. Men and women were being harassed and bullied. End quote. What Banks cites as harassment and bullying is part of the ordinary, intense political war that goes on inside Parliament and has done since its, since its foundation. Ideological struggles cannot be passive affairs, and nor should they be. If an MP cannot survive the heat of their own party room, then they have no business sitting in office to face off against the opposition. Julie Bishop suffers from a similar relevance deprivation syndrome, who went on to complain later that her bid for the leadership was dismissed because she was a woman, rather than face the prospect that Morrison simply had sharper political knives than her. Morrison had been shuffling around in the background for many years, having wanted to make his play for the leadership during the toppling of Abbott, but found himself outplayed by Turnbull. The short of it is, Banks misjudged a key political situation and found herself on the wrong side of the outcome. After this mistake, Banks and Bishop started to speak about bullying, something which neither had shown an interest in while they enjoyed the trappings that political and factional power afforded them. Accounts from their peers detail that Banks did not handle this failure particularly well. Quote, that week was so stressful that a number of events were organised to help us interact. Drink parties were held in various colleagues' offices and on the Friday, Fletcher hosted a morning tea. It is obvious that the week had taken its toll. New MPs like Julia Banks, the member for Chisholm, and Sarah Henderson, the member for Karangamite, had never been through such an experience and the strain showed on their faces and on the faces of other friends, end quote, Christopher Pine, from his book, The Insider. Which brings us to one of the pivotal events in Banks's claim to victimhood status. Though we know little about which party or who was involved, Banks told 7.30, quote, I was sitting on a couch talking to another MP and then a cabinet minister sat on my right and he sort of did that flippant, how are you, and then put his hand on my knee and ran it up my leg on the upper part of my leg, end quote. Banks momentarily froze and walked away to another female MP who she told about the incident and asked her to keep speaking with her. The corporate power women reading this are probably thinking to themselves that the correct response would have been to stare down the man and say, get your hand off my knee or I'll pour my coffee on your lap. That comes with a 100% guarantee that it won't happen again. Whether the event happened or not, it cannot be overlooked that Banks, an MP afforded a position of responsibility and power, chose to say nothing until it was politically convenient to her. This mirrors a sentiment expressed on Twitter by Federal Labor MP Peter Murphy. Quote, Just now on Insiders ABC, Minister Birmingham response to incidents like the sexual harassment recounted by Julia Banks is that they should be reported. Yet again, responsibility for stopping this behaviour is put on women. The Morrison government just doesn't get it. End quote. 
Of course, the responsibility falls on women to report incidents if they want to see them stopped. How does Murphy think crime works in the rest of the nation? Do we send memos to thieves and drug dealers, kindly asking them to please stop? Or do victims report crimes by calling police? The hashtag MeToo narrative teaches that victims have no responsibility because their aim is to drag out the problem indefinitely as the foundation of their activist profit. If women were encouraged to report and confront offenders, the social problem would find itself facing extinction, along with the hashtag MeToo movement. Far from being a victim of a boys' club, it was Banks's decision not to recontest her seat at the next election and her decision to make the announcement at the worst possible time for a Morrison government that she didn't like. It is inconceivable that she was surprised by the Prime Minister's call to request her to reconsider in the interests of the party, or at the very least, delay the announcement to a better time. MPs within a party are expected to care about the survival of the party. Otherwise, why did they get into politics? Morrison's request was reasonable, as was the anger and frustration later directed towards Banks, who was seen as selfish, thoughtless, revenge-seeking minor MP. Banks deserved the damage control politicking triggered by her resignation. One thing is for certain, it had nothing to do with her gender. Quote, This whole narrative about me being this weak pedal that hadn't coped with the coup, and that's the reason I was leaving, was the narrative that they had created and that he was complicit, Scott Morrison, absolutely complicit, with when he did that first presser, end quote, said Banks. What did Banks expect? It's politics. She then decided to serve the rest of her term as an independent, also known as a traitor. There are two types of treacherous independence in politics, those like Craig Kelly, who betray the party, to serve the people because the party has fallen off the rails, and then the banks of the world, who would vindictively rage quit in the hopes of giving themselves more power and significance by flirting with the opposition. Quote, I thought, if I'm to exit this parliament, I'll exit on my terms and under my story and not on their terms. So I announced that I was going to become an independent. I made that statement in the House in the November sitting week and did a power walk back to my office. I knew it would cause a reaction and there was this rapping at my door. We'd locked the doors and the phones were going nuts. We couldn't hear ourselves speak, my staff and I. And then we realised it was Josh Frydenberg banging on my door, end quote. If anything, Banks' story reads as someone who was bullying the party and revelling in the fallout of attention that she admits to knowing would result. In all probability, she'd have cried offence if the party had shrugged and ignored her act of self-immolation. Reports of Frydenberg live-texting Sky's news during the event are hilarious. Banks was far from alone on the crossbench. She shared it with a collection of liberal in name only, lino female MPs who have more in common with the Greens than their blue ribbon constituents. They were the awkward public fallout from a power struggle between true liberals and the seat warmers who had lost some of their creature comforts after the demise of Turnbull. There was no love for them, and with the fringe and sometimes violent left wing activist group Get Up pouring a fortune into election campaigns in their seats, Banks's, oppo Banks's opponent was Greg Hunt, who was set upon by GetUp. This situation cemented Banks's reputation, not just as a traitor to the party, but to the conservative movement. <clears throat> Quote, She Banks moved to the crossbench and despite being elected as a liberal, routinely voted with the opposition. Banks had exited over the Dutton challenge in August the year before. There wasn't a lot Dutton could do to convince her of anything, end quote. For the rest of her time, she sat on the crossbench as an obstructive force, betraying the people who voted for her in the ultimate misuse of power and violation of trust. As for Banks, describing Morrison as, quote, menacing controlling wallpaper, end quote, Margaret Thatcher would have gotten out the vinegar and set about removing him. For young women looking at political careers, MPs like Banks set an extraordinarily poor example – not only are they incapable of playing politics, they monetize the worst attributes of femininity that plague women trying to forge ahead, namely emotional weakness. Banks isn't the only one. Quota systems have put a whole stack of women in the firing line of politics who would never have earned their place in a fair fight. Politics is a cutthroat industry that suits natural male attributes, but does not exclude women who want to play the game. 
back in the 80s, predatory men who unwisely chanced their luck with young women on packed Sydney trains found their feet riddled with stiletto holes at the next stop. Meanwhile, men who are slain by the political machine cannot blame their demise on others or write a poor me, I had to rebuff the adoring looks of pretty girls at cocktail parties book. Men have to own their own decisions, and if women want equality, so should they. But these women don't want equality. They want quotas to parachute them into power, unbalanced social regulation to shroud them from the fray, and a money-making activist machine waiting in the wings to punish anyone who dares to challenge their meritless existence. They are the perfect example of ambition without resolve and power without principle. And that's the end of the article by Alexandra Marshall. Uh, so looking forward to seeing your comments on, on that. Uh, and uh, we've got some there. Uh, okay, probably nothing that's super exciting to put on there. Um, Elizabeth Oakman says, hi, everyone. Um, awesome. So let's have a chat about um, covid so we see uh, the BBC is reporting that most rules are set to end in England, says the PM. And just read some bits from this. Good old Boris Johnson, bit of a bedwetter, uh, but seems like some common sense has uh, finally infected him. Face masks will no longer be legally required and distancing rules will be scrapped at the final stage of England's COVID lockdown roadmap, Boris Johnson has confirmed. The rule of six inside private homes will be removed and work from home guidance abolished as the 16 months often on restrictions on daily life ends. The PM said he expected the final step would go ahead as planned on the 19th of July. Not very long to wait. This will be confirmed on Monday after a review of the latest data. Further updates on school bubbles, travel and self-isolation will follow in the coming days, Mr Johnson told a Downing Street news conference. He said that even after the removal of the legal requirement to wear a face covering, he would continue to wear one himself in a crowded place as a courtesy. That's great. I love that he's not compelling it and giving people the option. Mr Johnson said the ability to end a vast majority of legal restrictions in England was thanks to the success of the vaccine rollout in weakening the link cases in weakening the link between cases and deaths but he warned the cases were predicted to rise to 50,000 a day 50,000 a day new cases in England and Boris Johnson is talking about removing legal restrictions on freedom because case numbers don't matter sick people matter hospitalized people matter dead people matter Infected people with no symptoms who need a test to figure out they had the virus don't matter. Case numbers don't matter. But he warned cases were predicted to rise to 50,000 a day later this month and that we must reconcile ourselves, sadly, to more deaths from COVID. Yes, well, nearly 1,000 people die each year from the flu in Australia. Uh, the Prime Minister explained, Boris Johnson, if we don't go ahead now when we've clearly done so much with the vaccination program to break the link, when would we go ahead? He added, we run the risk of either opening up at a very difficult time when the virus has an edge, has an advantage in the cold months, or again, putting everything off to next year. Uh, so smart, smart. And this uh, Nick Triggle commentary says, um, no country in the world has attempted to lift restrictions like this in the face of rapidly rising cases driven by the new more infectious Delta variant. I don't know where Boris Johnson is getting his courage from, but it seems like a stroke of common sense. You're not going against the science. This is just common sense. What you're going against is the narrative and the politics. Uh, so, you know what? Smart to do it now. Um, brilliant. Yeah. Psychedelic says this is a case demic. Uh, well, I think it's a politician demic. Um, so, yeah, uh, 50,000 a day. Um, uh, Rowan says, now where was he? I clicked the wrong one. There you are, Rosh. Rosh Johannes. I hope I said that right. Rosh, Rosh. Anyway, 50,000 a day. It's just incredible. Incredible. And they've got a bigger population than us. But still, man alive. We've got to stop counting the flipping case numbers. George Christensen said it well. I don't know if he coined the phrase, but he certainly popularized it. Fear porn. Stop it, mainstream media. Uh, <laughs> um, Sandra Marie says the drama continues next variant in the UK is to be hay fever renamed 
uh, and publishing a promoting a website there, stopthecrime.net. Um, all right. Now, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg has added uh, domestically to the calls. I was talking to Matt Canavan today, um, just running this logic by him, and, and he said, you know, what people in the coalition are agreeing with this, that we need to stop obsessing about case numbers. Uh, and uh, he told me to look this article up. I hadn't heard it, and thanks, uh, Senator Matt. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg says Australia needs to move our focus from pre to preventing hospitalisations and deaths. The serious things, not the trivial things like the case numbers, which is just incredible. Federal, Josh, Federal Treasurer Josh Frydenberg says Australia needs to move away from worrying about COVID-19 case numbers to focus on preventing hospitalisation, fatalities and very serious illness. Can I remind everyone, uh, Queensland's Chief Hell Officer has uh, said uh, back a little while ago uh, that she told, now this is reported in the Brisbane Times, not a right-wing conspiracy theory website. She said uh, that she told the Queensland Premier, Ms Palaszczuk, to shut down schools on March 26. She said while evidence showed schools were not a high-risk environment for the spread of the virus, closing them down would help people understand the gravity of the situation. Quote, if you go out to the community and say, this is so bad, we can't even have schools, all schools have got to be closed, you are really getting to people, Dr Young says. So sometimes it's more than just the science and the health, it's about the messaging. So my advice to the Premier was we've got to do it. It'll be awful, but we've got to do it. So here's Jeanette Young admitting that there is no evidence to show the schools were a high-risk environment for spreading the virus, but closing them down was about politics, about messaging, about optics, about scaring people into believing the government, and she admitted it would be awful. The impact on people didn't matter. The only thing that matters to her was the politics, and maybe that's a little unfair. Obviously, she cares about people, and the science has to have something to do with her job, but what we see here is plain evidence that there's an awfully large amount of pure political arbitrariness involved in this altogether. Uh, and so joining me this evening is Professor Augusto Zimmerman. Augusto, just uh, unmute your mic there. Wonderful. And uh, thank you for coming on to The Good Source. How are you? How are you doing? I'm doing very well. It's uh, always a great pleasure to talk with you, David. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, tell me your take on uh, case numbers. I think you wrote in your article when we had you on the show last week, uh, an, an agreeing sentiment. Um, and maybe Josh Frydenberg read your article and uh, listened to you and said, you know what, Augusto's right. We need to stop worrying about case numbers. Yes, because the whole approach was not uh, that we should have a concern for case numbers, but it was uh, a concern about hospitalizations and the fact that some of these people contracting the virus could potentially overflow the hospitals and the hospitals would face difficulties uh, in the treatment of those uh, who uh, contract the, the virus. But um, to have the virus doesn't mean necessarily that the person develop even the symptoms of the coronavirus. Uh, I know uh, as a, to be a matter of fact that um, in conversations that I have had with people overseas, that uh, even those who sometimes uh, are told to have the virus, uh, they can actually be quite surprised to be informed so because they didn't feel even unwell. Uh, I know a person at the age of 80 years old who told me that he was only uh, 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 aware of, of the fact that he had the coronavirus when the doctor told him and he was feeling perfectly fine. So we shouldn't destroy the whole economy mm. and to make the lives of people a misery and leading even potentially uh, people to uh, do silly things. Uh, I would even say that suicide is a possibility for some people because uh, if they have lost their jobs or if their business has been 
financially ruined as a result of these uh, arbitrary draconian measures, we should hold uh, the Prime Minister and every single irresponsible Premier in this country uh, fully accountable. Yes, I agree, and and I think it's uh, politicians covering their butt, which is why this is is dragging on so long. Um, we did the interview on Good Source uh, and on Pello Talk a couple of episodes ago uh, with uh, Doug Allen, uh, economics professor, uh, and economics is the study of human behaviour, not just uh, dollars and um, and and patterns, and and they take modelling and test their theories and and prove whether it's right or wrong. And, and basically, he was taking the modelling from f that everybody relied on to shut down the world, Australia and the states, uh, with, you know, then saying, okay, well, what does the real data show us now, six months, 12 months, 18 months later, uh, what's that modelling look like? And it was completely broken. It was really, really, really bad. Uh, mm. And these economics professors saying, you know what? Uh, they way overestimated the risk, the mortality, and the the replication rate of the virus, and they way underestimated the impacts, not just on economy, but on human lives, the uh, impacts on culture, the impacts on on policy and and freedom, the the impacts on real human damage has been vastly underestimated by policymakers, uh, and yeah. and as a result. The worst policy failure in peacetime ever, which is a big mm -hmm. call for an academic to make. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, perhaps uh, being a little bit Machiavellian here or uh, suspicious uh, of government, I would say that the politicians have never had such a good time in their lives because uh, they feel so much uh, in, entitled to do these things, they don't have. They don't feel that they have the obligation to uh, abide to the law. And they, um, are in many ways, play the role of gods here, uh, thinking that they have the supernatural powers to uh, prevent anyone to die, even if the person is at the age of 100 or 102, as a, a recently a person at this, this particular uh, age group uh, passed away. So everybody now who dies, uh, uh, it's certainly a tragedy, but um, we have to bear in mind that this approach should always be taken holistically because if you uh, limit your analysis to just the epidemiological problem, uh, there will be other problems involved that are not expected. And that Hayek perhaps would explain this when he talked about the scientific delusion of politicians and people who can... Uh, when they are in positions of power, think that they can resolve every single problem of society just making decisions. But there are unintended consequences of these decisions. And you mentioned uh, the concern of concerns of economists. Uh, I would include myself as a person who is quite concerned about this uh, uh, disregard for the holistic approach that should be taken. So I am 100% sure that there will be terrible consequences, unintended consequences of these decisions. They are already taking place, and that will drive the economy down and will lead to very terrible uh, realities that uh, our fellow citizens will have to experience. Yes, it's... It's already there. It's been there for a long time. And uh, I, I left a comment underneath uh, the opposition leader's uh, Facebook post today. Uh, and, and, and you know, it, it seems like uh, just on that comment, uh, somebody else was, was responding that um, perhaps the medical fraternity would disagree with me. And, and my response was, yeah, but here's the problem. It's not a zero-sum question. Yes, there's a risk from COVID, but it seems these policy decisions are being made in a vacuum where only the medical fraternity's expertise is considered, where only the risks from COVID is considered. And none of the risks from policy on other areas of, of life, like late detection of degenerative diseases like cancer and and uh, heart disease and, and obesity developing from from poverty resulting from economic lockdown, you know, the, the health and flow on consequences have just been not considered at all because we're only talking to one set of experts, only listening to one set of experts uh, instead of taking in. And this is why we don't run elect doctors to run the nation. 
We elect politicians to gather information from a variety of experts, take a multitude of counsel, and then weigh it all up and make a policy decision, uh, not a technical decision. Uh, mm-hmm. So, and you, and you also have to bear in mind that even amongst uh, the members of the medical profession and uh, medical doctors uh, who are professors of the, some of the best universities in America and in England, they would actually strongly disagree uh, from what uh, uh, these uh, so-called health experts uh, are advising. Uh, for, in my opinion, uh, I don't want to be too skeptical, but um, th- they feel that they have all this power. And power, as I mentioned uh, before, in one of our previous conversations can corrupt the character of a person. And certainly these uh, professors from Harvard and Yale can refer to Ioannidis and Katz, they are extremely or far more qualified than these uh, so-called health experts. I, uh, this person, Young, this Dr. Young in Queensland, she doesn't have even one third of the qualifications of Dr. Katz and Dr. Ioannidis uh, from Stanford University. And they are telling her indirectly because they don't even bother to know her that she is completely wrong. So yeah. the best of the best epidemiologists in the world are against lockdown. So these people not even are getting the proper uh, health advice. They're getting the health advice from people who are less qualified than those who are telling us that the lockdown is going to cause more harm the benefit. These people, as I said before, you have you'll be responsible for the disastrous consequences that this lockdown will bring about to many lives. Yes, absolutely. Okay, uh, let's have a look at uh, sponsor Red Union from uh, the uh, Nursing Professional Association of Queensland. Uh, now, I have a lot of time for nursing professionals. And the type of caring person that does the kind of work they do. If you're a nurse in Queensland, New South Wales, or any other state in Australia, you can save hundreds of dollars every year on your current union membership fees. And best of all, you can be guaranteed your money is not being donated to the Labor Party or any other political party for that matter. Now, you do need professional indemnity insurance, so Good Source Sponsor, the Nursing Professional Association of Queensland, will not only provide you with that and save you hundreds in fees every year, they'll also send professional employment lawyers into bat for you when you need their help. For professional indemnity insurance and better service, real support at work without the political donations, saving them hundreds of dollars every year, Nurses around Australia are joining the Nursing Professional Association of Queensland in their droves at redunion.com.au. You should only have to pay for what you're getting. And at NPAQ, you can get better service while saving hundreds every year. And you can save an extra $25 when you join by using the coupon Good Source. That's no spaces, good source, and NPAQ will know we sent you. Join now at redunion.com.au. I love that web address, redunion.com.au. Augusto, we've had some uh, information, I think, that's really gone viral. Um, Tell me in the comments section if you've seen the video about the the gentleman explaining section 51 of the constitution uh now section 51 of the constitution says and let's have a quick look at it it says uh that uh, the commonwealth of australia constitution act section 51 legislative powers of the parliament the parliament shall subject to this constitution have power to make laws for the peace, order and good government of the Commonwealth with respect to the provision of maternity allowances, widow's pensions, child endowment, unemployment, pharmaceuticals, sickness and hospital benefits, medical and dental services in brackets, but not so as to authorise any form of civil conscription, close brackets, benefits to students and family allowances. That's uh, clause uh, 23A. Um, now, me being a very, very excellent idiot, uh, I have a phone book of friends who are way smarter than me, and I called Augusto and I said, Augusto, is this 
a well-interpreted video. Is this video setting us straight? Uh, and and is it actually relevant to whether or not Scott Morrison can impose mandatory vaccinations on Australians? Uh, and uh, who better than to relay what Augusto said than Augusto? Well, the, first of all, I must say that uh, uh, it is an unfortunate situation in this country uh, where politicians uh, seem to be either ignorant of the Constitution or so much willing and desiring to violate the, the, the text without any consideration for uh, the rule of law. Uh, Scott Morrison supported the arbitrary measures of uh, some state premiers in closing their borders when it was utterly unnecessary. And in the process, in enabling these premiers to violate Section 92 of the Constitution, which says that the border should be absolutely free. I can't find a more clear statement than when the drafters decided to state that the borders should not just be free, but it should be absolutely should be absolutely free. Uh, Scott Morrison allowed these little dictators here in Western Australia, uh, the Premier McGowan, to uh, violate the Constitution. So it doesn't seem to me that Scott Morrison has a preoccupation with uh, respecting the fundamental law of this nation. And he made a statement a couple of months ago saying that he would expect that the vaccines or, or vaccinations would be as compulsory as possible, as mandatory as possible, forcing, uh, if possible, the entire population to take the vaccine. Uh, he is unqualified indeed to be the leader of a nation if he is so much uh, candidly uh, willing to violate a very clear provision in the Constitution, which is found in Section 51, as you have referred to. And it's actually true to say that this uh, particular provision has been um, a subject of precedent by the High Court when it has in the past decided that indeed uh, the relationship between medical and doctor cannot suffer uh, compulsory intervention from the state and at the same time, I could say, both federal and uh, at state level. That provision that the person referred to was not originally found in the document, but it was a result of a constitutional amendment. Uh, Section 51 says that uh, uh, it's what authorizes the Commonwealth to legislate co concurrently with the states meaning that if the federal government or federal parliament doesn't legislate on the subject, uh, the states have then the authority to also legislate and legislate even comprehensively. But if the federal parliament legislates on the subject, then uh, the states are limited in the scope of their the reach in the exercise of the power uh, as a result of inconsistency, as uh, we call so federal law prevails over state law to the extent of the inconsistency. However, that provision uh, tells us very clear that there should be no conscription, meaning that uh, those who are uh, involved in uh, the facilitation of medicine or perhaps even providing medical service should not be forced in his or her relationship with a patient to do the things that either the federal government or the state uh, arbitrarily dictates. Uh, that is, according to a decision from 1949, uh, invalid, an invalid use of the particular uh, head of power. Uh, later on, you have another decision in the 1980s confirming that a doctor must be freely engaged with the performance of uh, medical service uh, so that he's not going to be uh, forced to do things and that patients should not be conscript to take any sort of vaccination. That would then be regarded as uh, 
invalid exercise of uh, power by uh, any legislation or arbitrary measure uh, determining this sort of measure. So that's uh, what civil conscription mm-hmm. means, that, that word, uh, it talks about, it's not talking about joining the military conscription, it, mm-hmm. it's talking about, uh, what, what does that exactly mean? Yes, and you have also a more recent decision by the High Court in a case called Wong and Commonwealth um, that has even better clarified the scope of this uh, constitutional prohibition of any form of civil conscription in relation to uh, not only federal but also state uh, provision of medical services. And it's very clear to me, I must say, that these provisions only confirm the decision, better say, of the High Court in 2009, only serves to confirm previous decisions, including that one that I referred to from 1949, indicating then that this uh, civil cons- conscription is uh, certainly not to be uh, exercised, and that the guarantee that this should not be so According to the Chief Justice Robert French in this decision, uh, as I referred to in 2009, he said it very clearly that this should be even construed as widely as possible so that this uh, would then prohibit the work of both federal and state governments in this respect. Uh, The decision restricts the capacity of federal and state governments to implement mandatory vaccination. And even recommends uh, uh, the national health uh, directives to actually not allow this to be so and explicitly then forbidding this sort of measure. Yeah, so it seems like a confusing phrase, civil conscription. Uh, you know, conscription is to perform a service or, or labour um, for the government. Um, and, and so is the language of the constitution and, and the people yeah. who make this law talking about receiving a vaccination as a conscripted service to the government. And that's why we need to have the proper judicial interpretation of the provision. And when the provision refers to conscription, the High Court then has to explain what it means. And it means to force the citizen to be recruited to a certain action or plan that is being uh, designed by either federal or state tiers of government. Okay, so, so to be clear, we cannot, conscription mainly means that you cannot be forced to be uh, exercising an activity or uh, a recruitment for an activity that you are not wanting to be engaged. And certainly the conscription here would say, would go in, the, in if you can actually expand this a little bit more, in terms of implementing uh, mandatory vaccinations that would uh, make you less of a citizen because uh, without this so-called conscription then you will become third or even fourth rate citizen not having your right for instance to travel if they decide to implement the so-called um, vac- vaccination passport and others yeah. are now even saying that uh, about the vaccination, you cannot even attend um, school or go to a restaurant or perhaps even watch footy at uh, uh, MCG or any other stadium. So it would be uh, basically turning the lives of those who are not vaccinated a total misery and yeah. certainly a form of oppression as a result. So to be clear... Uh, the High Court provision, sorry, the Constitution here expressly, according to High Court interpretation, expressly prohibits Scott Morrison from compelling citizens to receive the COVID vaccination. Uh, And that also includes the states. The states are also bound by that provision. Uh, Is that correct? Absolutely. That's entirely correct. But... Uh, another thing that is entirely correct is that in this country we have the right to express our opinions and to politically uh, oppose these uh, arbitrary measures that are, as I say, ultimately unconstitutional. And the pr- Prime Minister has this uh, tendency to, I would say, 
contest decisions of the High Court, even in a less direct way, when he said that Israel Falou, for instance, could not make political statements that are ultimately political because they were concerning a very important matter regarding uh, passage in scripture. So the implied freedom of political communication is something that must be exercised and no, no one has the right to oppose uh, the opinions of those who think that the vaccination is um, a violation of their constitutional rights because it, that is exactly uh, what is happening here. Now, what about people working in aged care or as we see the Queensland government um, grossly overreacting to the risks today and mandating vaccinations for medical students in, in public health facilities? Um, can the government do this as a condition of employment? Can they say, well, if you want to work in the aged care sector, then you have to surrender that right to not be conscripted for... for can they make workplace-specific <coughs> exceptions to that constitutional ruling? This is a, a more complex question, and certainly it would be much better answered by a professional in this particular area that should be a label, a lawyer, uh, an HR lawyer. But uh, my impression of this is that if you already have the job, you cannot be forced. So those who are already in the, sec in the sector but are working in hospitals uh, cannot be uh, forced to take the vaccine, that would be uh, certainly uh, even unconstitutional, unconstitutional, as I say. But uh, if you are about to obtain a job and the employer makes such requirements, that is a, a more complicated area. And I would uh, be uncomfortable to make a, a positive uh, straight affirmation about this. But my as a, as a constitutional lawyer who values freedom, uh, my first reaction is to say that this is all good and valid if it was in the private sector. Nobody has the, the right to force an employee, employer to make such stupid decisions. But when it comes to government, then I think the scope of the uh, powers of government are limited by the law. And I my natural inclination is to say that this is also a violation, at the least, of a natural right, if uh, not a constitutional law violation. Uh, one of the nurses uh, watching tonight, uh, hello, welcome, thank you for watching all the time and thank you for the job that you do, uh, says that um, it's a condition of employment right now. Um, if, if she's already employed, this is absurd. Because, of course, when we get a job, you have to sign a contract. And, and, and if I had a job now and they changed the rules of the game, I would sue them. Uh, and why the government thinks they can do such a terrible thing? Now, everybody who already is there working in, in hospitals should not be forced to do things that they didn't know they would be forced to when they decided to accept the job in the first place. So as an example, she explains that she worked in a hospital that has a chest clinic and a community of tuberculosis, so we had to be vaccinated against TB. Yes, but uh, perhaps uh, that the question is that, that did she find out after she got the job and there was nothing about this when she got the job or she accepted these terms and conditions uh, before accepting the employment. That's a very different... Uh, so uh, yeah. the circumstances are very important. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I take your meaning on that. Let's move on because I'd like to uh, wrap it up with... Um... Look, uh, can I say something about this? I, I also favor freedom of association. And when you have some people saying that that particular, let's say, club in New South Wales was discriminating because it accepts men only, I, I think that uh, the best way to answer to this is that if they have a club that only accepts feminists and radical feminists, I would not even want to join that. So I think it's outrageous when people want yeah. to, to change the ethos of certain organizations. I value freedom of association, 
What I don't value is government imposing things. That makes things only worse. And that's the result of these draconian laws that we already have in place in this country. Yep. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Uh, okay. Well, um, I can't remember what I was about to do just then, but let's have a look at uh, this. I, I do want to promote this um, this petition. Please, George yeah. Christensen, don't go. Uh, so the petition, I'd encourage you all to sign it. Uh, and more importantly, can you please share it, spread the word, uh, and let's multiply it. Let's get 10, uh, 10 or 100 extra signatures on this each. Uh, so we've got a bit over 500, which is a good start so far. Uh, and basically it's saying, George Christensen, we need more people like you in government, not less. So please don't um, go and spend time with your family. We need you more. Uh, and that's probably not fair. I don't think he can make a wrong decision, to to be fair. Um, and it's very good for him to spend time with his family. But yeah. if you would uh, like to um, sign that petition, go to goodsource.news uh, forward slash don't dash go dash George. Don't go George with dashes in between the words. Uh, but you'll also be able to see that uh, on the top of the most popular posts right now. Please, George don't go um and it's on yeah. the front page as well uh there's uh, you know i was talking to matt canavan he was talking about other things that george christensen has done and i just couldn't list them all in there significant battles that he's waged um and didn't try to list them all um but uh yeah that's that's really important if you can all please uh do that if you haven't already sign and share that um that that petition that would be Really, really great. Um, and uh, also, just want to uh, let you know that um, I think somebody was saying it's criminal how few people are watching this live right now as we stream. Uh, no, it's not a huge amount, but it is more than you're seeing because um, we're going live on four different channels, so you may only be seeing a quarter of, of what's out there. And obviously a lot more people see it in the podcast and after we post it on the website uh, tomorrow. Um, now... We've got this great article from you today uh, that's rocketing up the up the uh, popularity um, charts. Augusto, another one by you. Uh, with friends like ScoMo, who needs enemies? And uh, there's a little bit of a artwork there where ScoMo is ironically wearing the flag upside down, the uh, standard signal for distress. Um, and uh, behind him is the forecourt of the abandoned um, opera house. Um, tell us about the story. Why? I mean, it's it's a fairly long article. We won't read it now. It'll, it'll take a good ten minutes. Um, Augusto, give us the gist of of what the the article is about, and and why people should either read it or listen to the podcast. Well, uh, at this point, uh, I guess uh, every listener knows of my concerns that uh, the Labour Party has been pushing a very radical agenda and nobody wants the return of the Labour Party to federal politics because it would be another disaster. But um, I have the impression that the Prime Minister is feeling so comfortable that there is no uh, pressure coming from the right that he is uh, trying to obtain perhaps some favors from the left by embracing some uh, very left-wing causes. But I'm also questioning the fact that um, uh, as a prime minister, some of his policies have been quite unchristian, in my opinion. And I can say so uh, from a comfortable position, because um, I was, uh, until uh, not such a time, such a long time ago, the vice president, the senior vice president of the Liberal Party in one of the divisions here in Western Australia. And uh, I remember that uh, we managed, uh, one of my colleagues, to pass a motion of the division of the, the Liberal Party in Western Australia as a whole, by the way, to help those uh, poor farmers that are being uh, murdered in South Africa and to bring them because they would be great people. Uh, they are victims of uh, crimes against humanity, and they, are, they would be dying if you didn't help them. 
So what I did was to ask if the government could help them by granting them a special visa. And that was passed by the Liberal Party in Australia. What amazes me is the level of disregard for uh, the base of the party when that notorious uh, foreign affairs minister, that notorious person called Julie Bishop, completely ignored the request and said that the United Nations uh, uh, would have the final say and that these white people, I don't know if because of the color of the skin, I have no idea, I'm just speculating, but then they would not be qualified to immediately obtain this special visa. As a result, I believe uh, some of these people who applied who apply didn't obtain the uh, special status visa might have perished, or some of the relatives as a result of the a terrible violence that's taking place in, in these farms uh, in, in, in um, South Africa. Then after that, I was doubly disappointed when we had that problem with that uh, Pakistani uh, lady, Asia Bibi, who was uh, facing the death row because she dared to offer a glass of, of water to um, uh, uh, her colleagues in the province of Punjab, she was working together in a plantation and she offered a glass of water to two uh, Pakistani uh, women there. And they thought that uh, because she's a Christian, she had defiled the glass by simply touching it. They forced her to um, acknowledge Muhammad as, as her prophet and because she said no, and she was accused then of blaspheming the prophet. Thank God. Uh, in the end of the day, uh, she was not executed. But uh, because of the Pakistani Supreme Court acquitting her, uh, she had to hide herself for her life. Uh, the radical Islamists vowed to kill her. And so that was an opportunity then for Scott Morris to save the life of uh, a person that, um, since he calls himself a Christian, is a fellow believer. Uh, to my utter disappointment, Scott Morrison, his government, refused to immediately help this lady. I even, even went on Sky News uh, to beg him to help this lady. Because after all, Scott Morrison, uh, prior to becoming prime minister, he referred to the fact that he has really a, a concern, a heart for the real refugees. This was a real refugee, a, a lady that needed our help to stay alive. And uh, the help was not immediately granted. And he claimed that uh, he would wait to see if someone else would do the favor, uh, even though waiting too much would cost her life. Then you have many other examples that I could give. That was during my time as a senior vice president of the Liberal Party in this division here in Australia. That forced me to resign because I can't stand this anymore. Abortion is a good example because when the Labour Party promised to use uh, tax rebates and perhaps even Medicare uh, to facilitate um, abortions in hospitals that are, as you know, uh, funded by federal money, uh, Morrison refused to be engaged in the question, saying that the, the question of abortion is too divisive. So he didn't say that he thinks as a Christian, and I suppose he does, that the killing of the innocent child is actually murder. It's a terrible thing to kill an innocent baby. And he was not able to say so. He said that the discussions of this order are too divisive. Then, to complete this problem, when we had two Christian candidates in Victoria, one complaining about the rise of um, radical Islam and the fact that we have to protect ourselves against something the government is, was even uh, uh, was um, planning to do, that's blasphemy law by stealth uh, in the form of uh, anti-discrimination laws that would prohibit uh, people to have opinions about religion and, and the exercise of religion. So and to, oh, we had this politician saying that this would be not appropriate. He was expelled. He was disendorsed. Another one who claimed that there was a, a, he had a concern here about um, uh, the uh, transgender agenda, he was also disendorsed. 
Scott Morrison, rather than protecting these people to have the right to express their opinion, said that the party should be more careful about the vetting process so that candidates of a conservative Christian uh, orientation should no longer be selected. So yeah. actively, he was supporting the persecution of Christians in the party. Right? Not only he was silent in this case, but he was taking the side of the oppressors in the party. Look, it's uh, yeah, it's certainly disappointing, and and I think your your article title sums it up very well. Um, you know, whose side is he on? Because uh, it seems like he's trying to prove he's not taking sides, and in doing so, uh, you know, scoring heaps of goals for for the left. Uh, and I I don't know where he's coming from with this four stage exit plan where you're not allowed to travel. Or there's a whole lot of you know, freedoms that they will deign to return to us, which they had no right to take if we inject what they tell us to. It's such a such a treacherous uh, proposition. We'll give you some of your freedoms back if you surrender some others. Uh, yes, and by the way, and by the way, when that uh, Asia people was facing that terrible uh, risk of dying uh, as a result of the uh, actions of radical Islamists, the government gave to Pakistan $47 million of taxpayers' mm -hmm. money in Australia. And we give half a billion dollars every year to Indonesia. So, I mean, I see lots of beggars on the streets in Perth. There are lots of drug addicts all over the place. The country is falling to pieces. We are becoming third world this way. And he takes the money of the people, especially the poor in this country, to give to the rich in these uh, Islamic nations. It's absolutely despicable. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Look, I, I, I'm extremely uncomfortable making a conclusion about somebody else's faith, but I can certainly make conclusions about their politics and policies, uh, and, and there's no no special skills required to do that. They're, you know, right out there, advertised and observable for, for everybody to see. Uh, Mama asks, where can we read Professor Augusto's article? Uh, hello, my name's David. This is a program called The Good Source. We run a website called The Good Source. It is available on the website, goodsource.news. Sorry if that was a tad sarcastic, um, but it seems like we've never met before. Um, Augusto is one of our favourite, most popular authors and podcasters. Uh, you can certainly listen to the podcast on any um, good platform, Apple, iTunes, I think that's the same thing, uh, Spotify, Google, Amazon, uh, there's a whole bunch. Um, and it's also embedded in the article on the website, so you can have a listen to it there. Great question. Thank you for asking. Free plug. Um, and Facebook user obviously commenting through one of the groups um, and hasn't given us uh, permission to see his name, says, how can I share this? Um, well, it's on Facebook, it's on YouTube, um, the Good Source and Dave Pello Facebook pages and the Good Source and Dave Pello YouTube channels, not just the uh, private group that you're watching in at the moment. Um, <clears throat> Geraldine, Geraldine, we won't take long with this question, Augusto. We're running out of time. What are you doing now? thought you were a Liberal Party member. If the Liberal Party is so useless, what can we do? Oh, this could be a half-hour segment, but give us 30 seconds, Augusto. What are you doing right now? Oh, well, I think the main issue here is that uh, if you remain the party being uh, what used in a manner that Lenny would call or describe you the useful idiot, is not, it's certainly not the best way to go. I'm sick and tired of being uh, in voting or endorsing politicians who betray me and betray uh, my values miserably. So the idea that I have here is that we definitely and desperately need to create uh, um, another political party, another force, perhaps even empowering the existing ones, to move the pendulum back to the right. We cannot support and endorse the behavior of people who are acting against our best interests. Yeah. I decided that as a, to resign from the party was important because I have a, an image and a reputation to preserve. I think it would be utterly demoralizing to be a member of a party that's actually contributing to the demise of this nation and to the undermining of fundamental rights and freedoms.
Yeah, correct. That is the reason I had to resign. But as I hope that the pendulum can be further moved to the right direction. If you have a movement for on the right of the Labour of the Liberal Party, uh, the Greens are pushing this to the left. We need to have another party that can put the Liberal Party at least back to the center and not to the the light Labour or to the left as it's, it currently stands. John Humphreys is watching. This is actually something I wanted to promote before. Um, LDP.org.au slash Freedom Day. Um, is that the worldwide um, protest for freedom, John, um, that you're talking about? I have to look it up real quick. Uh, LDP.org.au slash Freedom Day. I'm pretty keen on going to this. Um, in fact, I'm trying mm -hmm. to reach out to the organizers' uh, petition. All right, let's uh, screen share it. Um, uh, petition to set a date for this year. Okay, no, it's not the, the same thing, but that does look worthwhile. So, guys, check that out, ldp.org.au forward slash freedom day. Uh, good petition to sign there. Um, and uh, I don't think – look, uh, the, the thing that's coming up in a, in a couple of weeks um, – like global fight for freedom or global freedom day or something like that it's a it's a different thing but um it is um something that um uh, you know is going to attract a wide variety of people and there's some things that are some people they're going to be there with some ideas that i'm not super comfortable with uh and you know what we just have to find something in common uh, and put aside those differences and not be afraid of being associated with those bad ideas. And, and some of them are bad ideas that we might agree with. But freedom is a non-negotiable. Liberty is a non-negotiable. That's how God made us. That's what's intended for us. Government certainly didn't invent it, but their job is to protect it. And when they erode it, they're not just abusing freedom. They're abusing their authority and what, what they were cre created uh, to do. Uh, John just clarifying that's a petition to open the country can get behind that 100 um, percent yeah so uh, look we do need to wrap up um, Augusto thank you so much uh, for your time tonight thank you very much and just to make a point here uh, the prime minister is the leader of the nation and when he had the state elections in Western Australia he even claimed victory for the return of this terrible dictator that we have in, in, in this state of Western Australia. When uh, Dan Andrews uh, does all those terrible things, the national leader should say something about this and should stand for the rights and freedoms of the people. But rather than doing this, this uh, apparently Christian prime minister actually is telling Dan Andrews that he's doing a great job. Uh, we have statements of Scott Morrison praising the oppression of the people in both Victoria and Western Australia and, and across all jurisdictions in this country. This yep. has to stop. And you need, as soon as possible, to recover the rights and freedoms that have been stolen by these people and in the process of violating our, our Constitution. The time is now for a reaction. Yep. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much, sir. Well, that's it for this episode. I must take time to thank the Good Thought supporters, those people who are genuinely putting their hand in their pocket once a month, once a week for five, ten, or twenty dollars, and supporting the production of this show. Head to GoodSource.News for podcasts, videos, and articles by right-thinking Australian commentators like Augusto Zimmerman. We're now on Telegram, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's it. Good night. And make sure you have lots of fun. Today, we need a special kind of Today, courage. Today, we need a special kind of courage. Not the kind needed in battle, but a kind which makes us stand up for everything that we know is right, everything that is true and honest. We need the kind of courage that can withstand the subtle corruption of the cynics, so that we can show the world that we're not afraid of the future.